personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with information the businesses need to know. Now, I have a special guest on the show. His name is Joe Toscano. He is the CEO of DataGrade. He's also an author, uh, international keynote speaker, um, and he was a featured expert on The Social Dilemma. So welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. I have made it. Everybody listening, I made it. I'm on the Data Diva podcast. It's so cool. The funny thing is when we connected on LinkedIn, we ended up talking and it's always great when you have all those conversations where you feel like you could literally have recorded what we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, it was great. I, I had a click immediately when I started talking to you. So <laughs> I got super excited when you offered to bring me on the show. I was like, of course, this is this is what I need. Yes, yes. Well, it's amazing that we were able to connect and I'm happy to definitely have you on the show. But I want to talk with you. Talk to me about kind of your how did you get here? Like, why is data privacy important to you? And what's kind of been your data trajectory? How did you get here? Yeah, well, let me take you pretty far back, actually, Um, like childhood level. So it sounds weird now looking back, but um, the craziest thing when I was a kid, my mom actually went through a terrible sexual harassment case. So I learned at a very young age a lot about the value of privacy. And I actually would tell, if you ask my fourth and fifth grade teachers, they would say, Joe wanted to be a lawyer. Well, number one, I'm glad I kind of grew out of that over time. Uh, what I ended up getting into was technology. I built a whole career around learning to code, doing data science, all this kind of stuff. Um, and then as I got into data deeper, uh, both as a data scientist and an en- engineer, and then when I got out into uh, Mountain View, you know, I was consulting for Google at that point. I had built a career spanning across engineering and data science and design all in one. Um, I really started to see some of the troubles with the data operations and how that could increase the dangers of society if it was mistreated. You know, this was a time mid 2010, all these social media platforms, all digital tools really were blowing up. And the, the thing pushed me to speak out was, you know, number one, I felt that there weren't that many people who were in the position I was in, in which, uh, and, and I'm not saying I was in some classified special position, but in the sense that I had the knowledge of how to look at this stuff. I had a position in the industry that allowed me to look at it. I was also young enough and foolish enough to make the assumption that I could make a change. So I left, you know, I had, I didn't need supply for my family. I didn't have to put a roof overhead for kids and and everything. Um, And I could take that leap. So uh, the way I got to where I am now is really speaking a lot about technology, teaching people stuff. And then when I left, it just built and built and built. I wrote a book, which was really to help expand access to this information. You know, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska originally. And Every time I flew home from San Francisco to go teach at university or see my family, it was like I flew 15 years back in time. So I wrote this book because it just blew up 
my work because I guess the world was craving that at the time. The world was craving more knowledge that they could understand and talk to their family about peer to peer type, you know, information than what's traditionally put out is books for experts, you know, technical manuals. And that up into, as you mentioned, uh, being featured in The Social Dilemma. And all the impact I've been able to make so far is great. Uh, I, I really could never have imagined it would, it would be where it is today. When I was traveling around out of my coop, just trying to get this thing off the ground, you know, I had news people telling me I should go home to my parents' basement and put a tinfoil hat on. And sometimes I feel like I should have, but I made it. You know, I made it. And um, we're here today. And, and now I'm in a very privileged position to be able to speak about these issues at a larger scale and, and an effort that I'm super passionate about. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, I would like to talk about the social dilemma uh, for a minute. So uh, when this came out, I recommended it to almost anyone that I could possibly think of. Say, hey, you got to watch this, got to watch this. Um, I have seen some people, I just want your thoughts on this. Uh, I have thoughts as well, who sort of thought that it wasn't technical enough. And to me, I thought it was perfect because... You know, I feel like we aren't going to solve these issues by having ivory tower conversations about data. <laughs> so having something that's more accessible to everyone is is what we are lacking and we need more of. What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. I mean, I agree with both of you, right? <laughs> I think that it was definitely lacking technical scope. We can all sit here and say it was. I agree. Um, but I also agree with you that we need something that's not so technical. You know, it's, uh, I would have loved to have all the details about how the technologies are operating or different ways of looking at privacy. Uh, there's so many different ways we could talk about this, but then what happens uh, from a narrative perspective, from an actual impact perspective is you lose your audience, right? Like we had 90 minutes to explain a story. A lot of documentaries, they go the route of, hey, here's a bunch of people who are experts. Let's let them talk about it. Let's put them on camera and and just film some talking heads. When they were working on it, I said, hey, look, guys, I go back home. I go to the middle of the country. I go to places where people have no idea, maybe haven't even, you know, uh, not where I'm from necessarily in Omaha, but definitely farther out in Omaha or sorry, Nebraska. Um, there are places where Internet's still not really connected. They barely use it at all. Number one, you need to shorten the content. Choose a topic or like a pretty niche focus of two or three things. And then build a story around it. Put a lot of art in there. Work really hard to turn it into a graphical thing that people can wrap their heads around because otherwise it's just going to go over their heads. You know, that that was the rip problem. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree with both sides, right? We had to make it accessible. You had to also talk about there's a lot of people who have told me how much we didn't provide enough solutions. And I also empathize with them. I agree. I wish we had more time to put in more solutions. Um, I wish that we could have talked in more detail. But the reality is, again, you have so much time, you have so much attention. And in the regards to solutions, it was so nascent, right? That movie came out in 2020. But that means to film and edit a movie, it, it was being worked on since like 2017, you know, 2018. Um, to film something like that and think, what can we say that's going to be relevant in six months 
four years or five years even. Right. You know, we're not talking about centuries. Some things you do now, architects, for example, they build a building, it might stand for a century. Technology, we're talking about work that we're now is evolving every six to 12 months or faster in some cases, right? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was very hard. And I think I think what the social dilemma did well is it arose to raise awareness sorry raise awareness <laughs> it also built a platform right the the whole point of this actually was a piece of art if you think cultural artifact um this is something that others can build upon and that's what we want you know that's what these podcasts are for that's what follow-up interviews on, on national television are for that's what other movies that are coming out about more specific or more technical things are for but what we did is we helped build a bridge and if you start to use that bridge, good on you. If you sit and complain about it and talk about its limitations and that's all you focus on, then that's your right. But we're not getting any farther forward doing that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're, we're lacking some type of mainstream cohesion around that, this topic. Right. So, you know, uh, I know, you know, you see, you know, a book here, an article there, you know, maybe something came up in the news that spikes the conversation, but I think it needs to be more of a free flowing conversation and we need to be looking at it at all levels. So the one thing that I liked about the movie that they portrayed, which I think especially teens and kids don't really understand is kind of the psychological manipulation that happens, right? Where Mm -hmm. like the guy was Mm -hmm. very distraught about his girlfriend, they broke up and his algorithm all they want is to get his attention, right? So they're like showing him pictures mm-hmm. of his ex-girlfriend. That's very mentally tormenting, right? And I think that especially a teenager or, or a child for that reason, um, they don't really understand. <laughs> they don't understand right. what's happening, right? But they're having these feelings and emotions and I, some sometimes negative, right? Um, as a result mm-hmm. of this. So I think, you know, the, you know, the attention economy is a problem if the thing that that gets people's eyes and gets people's attention can actually harm them in the future. Oh, I a hundred percent agree. I think that it also did a great job of connecting those dots, right? Like that was another thing I mentioned, the narrative behind it. It was a lot of people call it a documentary, but it was a docudrama, right? We had partly, you know, uh, film right we had partly a movie that they built out a storyline so that you'd see some information and then it would connect it in a real world example that you're sitting there and you're like that's my family well that's my sister that's my brother like it connected regardless of who was on screen right um it was just a narrative that worked and the other thing too to build on that you know I, of course, going back to the second question, too, I, I really do wish that we could have talked a little bit more about the details there. But let me put it here because we have more technical people. OK, I got a lot of pushback that we talked too much about the attention economy and the addictions and that it is uh, really just something to get people's attention. Right. And I, I hear I hear that argument. Right. I hear you. There are deeper details of it. There are more nefarious details. of it. But let's talk about it here because I brought this to the. Attorneys general, right? They're trying to figure this out for antitrust. Mm-hmm. The thing I brought to them, and I also had recorded, if they had all the snippets from the social dilemma, I recorded at one point, I said, here's the real root of the attention economy. It's not about addictions, right? It is actually about data. And it just so happens that the addictions that have been built is a byproduct of their business model. 
Right. Right. Uh, I don't. I don't think anybody actually went out to try to harm society. I don't really believe it. I mean, you of course have bad eggs in society, but I don't believe it was really built like that. It was built because it's a venture capital system, right? That's underlying all of this, looking for the most efficient ways to allocate capital that's going to return the most money. And what they found was that having people connected to the device more often created the asset they actually need, which is data, right? That's what they really want. And, and then byproduct was addictions, a byproduct was loneliness, suicide, depression. We're now dealing with that. I don't think a bad business is one that makes some mistakes and harms people. I think a bad business is one that makes those mistakes and harms people, shows empirical research that it is doing this, and then defies that and says, it doesn't matter, we're doing it anyway. You know, I, I wanted to give them a grace period of change. We're just seeing that they haven't really. And now I do think, you know, they're they're getting to the point where we, we have to say, this is bad business um, and laws need to help come in place um, and bigger conversations need to be had amongst the tech audience. But even just there, what we just spoke about, like the details of the business model, I just mentioned here at a very high level, a lot of people in the movie, a lot of general public they would have got lost in the first couple sentences there. Yeah, totally. You know, um, it is very abstract, and we do need experts to sit in, qualified experts to sit in and represent people and help protect. You know, it's it's a freedom. It's a basic right. And I think, you know, the work that uh, we're doing, I'm not going to talk about the software, you know, a lot, but the work we're doing at DataGrade is all about that. It's about making this more accessible because like a movie grade or like a restaurant grade or steel diamonds, whatever it may be. We need some kind of rating system for this industry that the average consumer can look at and assess risk, right? We can never tell people do this, do that. Or it's also really hard to say this is absolutely not good. And this is absolutely bad, but, but you can define by risk. You can start to think through the things that make it accessible. And then again, we just start to bridge that gap deeper and deeper with, each step along the way. Yeah, that's great. Oh my goodness, I agree with that. Um, I want to talk with you a little bit about, since you kind of touched on algorithms and AI, this kind of mm -hmm. move I see from kind of a social network to more of like an AI-driven network. So when I'm thinking about, it's like mm -hmm. TikTok, right? So Mm -hmm. Where a lot of the, the social media companies like Facebook, they're trying to, you know, do these new business models and stuff like that. But we've seen mm -hmm. like a huge growth in tech TikTok and TikTok doesn't use the same kind of social uh, social mechanism. So where I feel like, um, you know, a lot of these social programs are like, OK, let, let me see you know, uh, who Joe is, who he knows, who's around him and kind of give mm -hmm. him information around about those people where now you have mm -hmm. some like TikTok is basically like, we're going to suggest, we're going to decide what you <laughs> see, right? And you're going to like consume mm -hmm. all this stuff mm -hmm. or whatever. So what just, what are your thoughts about that? Kind of what, where we're going with that? Well, let's pull it back a little bit. I think the initial contrast there was social media versus like the algorithm social media. Um, and I want to start there because I do think that was a critical inflection point. You know, I, um, I'm 33, I was born in 1989 in Nebraska. So it was more like, you could be like, if I was in New York, it was like I was born in 1979 because we're so far behind. But, you know, I've seen a lot of different technologies over the course of my life and I've seen it all mature. And the biggest thing that I saw in that shift there 
was the algorithm that got put behind discoverability, right? And and really started to suggest the posts that we now live in an automated world. But we didn't have a lot of these issues before the algorithms kicked in, right? Like I actually, for my book, it was, oh, I was told by a, a good handful of people that this was too political. But I did some work. I talked to some FBI agents. I, I talked to some people in government and policing. And I did some work to look up like the mass shootings we were having. And if you look into it, uh, and I don't have all the numbers exact off the top of my head anymore, but you know they're written down somewhere. If you want to look at them, I can pull them up for you. It was something like a 200 or 250% increase in the number of shootings per year from 2007 when the iPhone came out until at the time it was 2018 I was looking at. Um, if you extrapolate it out from 2012, 2014 area, when the algorithms really started to overtake, it actually grew, right? It grew exponentially. Like, so we had exponential growth from the onset of phones or an addiction in our pocket. Um, uh, sorry, smartphones, not just phones. And then we had an even larger leap once we got the algorithms in. Now, my theory is that what's happened is we're starting to just have, we're starting to see the effects of compounding interest on our minds, where before, you know, like when I was a kid, I, I got bullied a lot. I was a fat kid. I was a, a late bloomer. I got all the things came my way. And the thing is, I could get away from it. Right? I could go home. I could lock my door. I could get away from all this stuff. Kids, I mean, even adults who are now feeling this, they can't get away from it nowadays. And it's not just like a, one bully at school. It's like could be thousands of people all at once at any given moment, right. you know? Um, so algorithms have dramatically affected in, in the spread, the access, um, the utility, even honestly, we have to admit that as much as there are problems, there's also a lot of utility, right? Like something didn't come out from the social dilemma or a lot of other groups is that social media can be beneficial for you in a small dosage each day, right? It does right. connect us more. It does have benefits. Um, but yeah, I mean, the algorithms really changed the game. And now I think, so this is an interesting time. You're interviewing me and asking me about TikTok because I just got back on the platform. Now, my goal is not to become TikTok famous. My my goal is to help evacuate people. But right. that being said, I got back on. And uh, people are like, oh, why are you getting back on? Because, you know, originally I was on it. I got on TikTok when it was musically five, six years ago. I saw the original version. I downloaded it. I looked at it. I said, man, I'm 26. There are way too many kids on here. I need to take this off my phone. And I did. Right. But I'm back on it because we need to have these conversations now where everyone is, you know? Right. Um, and the thing that I've noticed, the thing that I've noticed, the craziest part about it, the difference between Instagram and TikTok, I really do believe is what you're saying is it just pushes stuff, right? Like right. Instagram, yeah, you scroll all the time, but TikTok, there's no break period right? There's no empty space. There's no like, I can pause. It's just going and I can't stop it. And it does get more dramatic with each flip, right? It really does go down the rabbit hole very fast. Um, sure, Instagram's recommendations do the same when I'm flipping through and I'm liking, but this is a whole new buzzsaw. Um, and it's pretty scary. You know, it's pretty terrifying where this is headed in regards to the impact on our communities. You know, um, and the fact that, well, as far as it's been reported, there are different versions in China than there are other parts of the world. I mean, that's right. That's concerning. Yeah. It feels a little <laughs> bit like Cold War information warfare. Um, 
Yeah. But you know, yeah, it's, I don't know. I don't know. It's a hard one to judge right now. I think the long uh, timeline of society will tell us where it goes obviously, but my gut is, is that, you know, we're at the stage too, I think with literacy awareness action around all those issues is, uh, 2013 when Snowden released everything till now, we've really been in a period of like growing awareness. Right. I think the social dilemma did a great job of showing that there's a tipping point, right? We, we have a, a lot of interest boomed all around the world. A lot of awareness was raised. Now we're moving into the stage of literacy and then we hit a stage of action. And my gut is that generationally we will shed TikTok. I don't know where we'll go. I don't know what will happen instead. But, you know, I do think Facebook's on its way out. Facebook Blue, at least. Uh, maybe the whole meta company is on its way out naturally, organically. There's nothing we have to do to it um, other than bad decisions on their CEO's part. TikTok, though, will probably be around for a while. And I don't, I mean, I'm not in social media enough to know what I think is next or how, how it can be repaired. You know, other than yeah, like, right, maybe right. we have some baseline laws of... yeah children can't have a smartphone until a certain age kind of like you can't smoke cigarettes you right. still have feature phone things for safety um, right. you know that was what more or less china said hey kids can only get certain content i think it's similar parallel um we don't want to compare ourselves to china it's not right. going to go over <laughs> with the right wing of society very well but the concept of protecting children's there and i think that's important um yeah i don't know i don't know the answer to that and i don't love tiktok but like I said, I'm I'm there. I'm going to start to create some messages. And really, what I'm going to end up doing is just <laughs> recording the interface all the time and saying, this is bad. Don't do that. This is what's <laughs> I'm going to get I'm stuck on TikTok trying to evacuate people. Yeah, yeah. I, <sighs> I get you. I get you. I don't know. I feel like, you know, the stuff that Facebook is doing, you know, with social and trying to get into a new business, you know, I have thoughts about that as well, as well as kind of Twitter sort of being the town square. I feel like the future is not about going to be social in that way. And I don't feel like the future is going to be the town square in terms of how we deal with media. Mm. So it seems like we're going into these little fiefdoms or these little silos. Mm. <laughs> these little I nodes. agree. And it scares the crap out of me. Yeah, it's very concerning. Yes. <laughs> very concerning. I, I mean, that was why a big reason why I left as well, right? Not only did I see the problems with uh, the, the way data was handled, the way data was used, but also, yeah, I mean, people who don't think about it, who don't have a background in media or haven't really thought about how we distribute information, like, the reason I think, I think a big reason why the United States was in its golden years had a lot to do with the fact that we had two or three media outlets at a time. You know, nobody wants to admit it. They want to poke at China or push at Russia and talk about the state controlled media. But like back then, we more or less, you know, we had America's broadcast and we had national broadcast. Like we had government run media, more or less. You know, um, it branched off since then. It's changed. Don't get me wrong. But but now the problem is what that allowed, as much as you may not want to say it out loud or what, but what that allowed was um, everybody received the same or generally the same information. So right. whether you were right or left, we could talk about the issue. We could debate it. We could have a democracy. Now it's so, like you said, just fiefdom. Um, it's almost becoming anarchy. And yeah. my fear is if you can't have a trustworthy, at least national level media outlet, 
you can't run a democracy. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how. I don't know how. You know, it gets a lot harder. <laughs> it's, it's concerning to me. So, right. you know, that was my thing is we have to figure out a bridge. I don't care what happens in the world. If I don't care if I pour all my money into this. If we don't have a democracy in the United States, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy living here. So I'm going to fix right. the problem. That's what I basically <laughs> said to myself when I left. Right. And um, luckily, I've had a lot of people come on board. Uh, I'm very happy with everybody I've met and worked with and had the privilege to start to make this thing important to people. Very good. I'm glad that you're on the case. You know, I'm I'm very pleased to see that there's a lot of grassroots efforts in the U.S. with people like you that are really pushing this uh, trying to, mm-hmm. you know, have your voice out there, like you said, meeting people where they are, you know, giving them some advice, giving them some choices, right? Because like you said, it doesn't work mm-hmm. to say, don't do this, don't do that. You're like, look, this is what right. the deal is. This is what's happening. You have to choose for yourself. So I feel like that transparency really isn't there. And I would mm-hmm. love to be able to socialize these concepts in a way that it's kind of something that anyone can talk about, right? So everyone has a stake. I Absolutely. This. So it shouldn't be just talked about at conferences or just talked about in universities or in companies. Cause you know, this, we're talking about the data of humans, right? So mm-hmm. being able to find a way to, to, you know, have, you know, have businesses definitely use technology in a way that's advantageous, but then not create this, you know, extraordinary harm as a result of that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, for me too, to, you're talking about democratizing this information when I like, I have a specific niche that I can go back to the Midwest. I can access people in the Midwest. I saw that when I left too, right? Like we're going to have these pockets of people who trust each other and that's how this is going to bridge, but especially privacy, uh, data protection is stuff that is bipartisan. You can take it to any part of the country and people, if they, even if they don't fully understand, they like want it or they're interested in it. Um, and also for me, like I said, going to the Midwest, I mean, I said, I'm going to clean up, be a businessman, and I'm going to go back and help have these conversations back home because whether I want to live full time in Nebraska or not, I have a lot of people I love back home. Uh, a lot of people who simply just don't have the knowledge of what's going on. They don't understand how to translate it. Um, and they don't know is. It, it's creating this very unstable world. People don't know what to send their kids to school for. You know, they don't know how to get a job. And really, that's, I think, why we have a lot of these problems because Nebraska and beyond, in these areas that are not Stanford and not coastal elite cities, especially in the middle of America, United States, they just want the comfort to you know, have a roof over their head, have health and life insurance and things they need, uh, have food for their family, you know, have peace. And and in Nebraska, right, they call it the good life. Um, It's not an exciting life. It's not like some fantastic, over-the-top, crazy life. It's a very good life. It's stable. It's good health. It's good education. It's basics. And a lot of people just want that. So I think if we can have this conversation with uh the other side of society to say, right? Because let's be honest, a lot of technology comes out of the coast. It comes out of the Stanford's, the more you know, liberal and highly educated areas. Um, if we can translate it, make it accessible, get people involved, uh, and then join around this issue of protecting our communities, protecting our kids, protecting our national security, 
Um, I think it's a bipartisan issue that can can really bring this country together if it's done in the right way. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. So so on on that issue, where do you feel like we in the U.S. are going on privacy, whether that be from a business perspective, an individual perspective, or kind of in legislation? That's a great question. And uh, it's what I need a crystal ball for here because I feel like things are changing so fast here uh, and, and proposals are being made left and right and things are just happening that, uh, you know, some places you're like, oh, I didn't expect that for a long time. Other places you're like, I've been waiting for a long time. So, um, you know, we had the federal proposal this year. I don't know that I see that going anywhere anytime soon. Um, no. <laughs> I read, um, so I know I had uh, Cameron Carey on the show and he was thinking, uh, I don't know if he said in the show, but him and I were chatting and he was, I said, you know, when it, when the yeah. ADPPA came out, I'm like, this is not going to pass. Right. So I was, you know, I was like the naysayer and everyone was all rah-rah. I and mean, so it didn't pass right before midterms. And then, Same. and then so, I think he said, well, I think maybe yeah. they'll do it in lame duck. And I just saw an article this, like this morning where they were like, mm-hmm. here are the priorities for the lame duck session. And privacy was not on there. ADPP was not yeah. on there. Right. So nah, I'm yeah. like, so we got to push, we got to this, this, <laughs> boulder got pushed back down the hill and got to push it back up the hill again i guess i think uh i think what's going to happen is that we're going to get legislation from a bunch of different places in a bunch of different ways uh i think that also what's going to happen so you know i i appreciate you mentioning kind of my work's been a lot more grassroots because it also kind of spins into my unique position which is I've done a lot of work with smaller and mid-sized companies. Uh, obviously, I did consult for a very large organization, and I've done I've had a lot of big impact uh, that I go talk to large organizations or workshop with them, et cetera. But I also have a bigger experience with small and mid-sized. And what I'm hearing, a few things. So number one, yeah, these laws, California, Colorado, Connecticut, kind of Utah, um, impair with, let's just be honest, the GDPR, which is causing global impact. Um, you have a lot of mid to large scale companies who are now required to follow those compliance rules, but then it's impacting small and mid-sized companies too, not because they're legally required, but because now they want to go work with those companies. They want right. to, uh, they're a delivery service that wants to integrate into Hyatt or, you know, there's some smaller marketing organization that wants to integrate into Salesforce or something like that. They have to more or less go through all the same certification, same right. uh, testing and compliance and everything to integrate, right? Or acquisitions or right. anything like that um, to where it is changing the entire landscape. Um, I think that as it piecemeal gets delivered across the United States, we'll, we'll continue to see that grow. I think thresholds, you know, we've seen proposals throughout the Midwest where thresholds are less of, you know, 50 or 25 million revenue and actually as slow as 10 million revenue, yeah. right? That's almost like a mom and pop shop. Yeah, absolutely. City, yeah. Right? Um, and so... It's getting really low. I think it becomes like tax brackets where a small organization has less responsibilities, but still has responsibilities. Uh, in a larger organization, it's much greater. I think that some of the things that are going to contribute to that moving forward, obviously, we got the conversation of Roe that opened up a big, like stuff that we never wanted to talk about, but actually has been good for us to talk about, I think, um, because it's enabled this conversation to where now we have a direct link to say, this is what we've been talking about as privacy professionals for 5, 10, 20 years, you know, it's right. now coming to light. Um, it's forcing that. I see, I think we saw it come out in the polls, right? Yeah, um, right, yeah. 
we 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 also are seeing um or at least what i'm seeing is the unionization of workforces uh, i think what we've been doing over the last 10 to 20 years uh in regards to locking down people's mental spaces their minds uh surveilling them at home tracking their emails all this kind of stuff is reminiscent of times back in the early industrial revolution where we locked people into the uh, into the buildings, right? We forced them to work long hours. We did all these things uh, to their physical body in the industrial revolution when we were doing physical labor that we're now replicating in a, a behavioral way. What we're going to see is demand for workplace privacy. Uh, and, right. and, and they may have some really large, these employee unions may have some really large levers to pull on that legislation, either state by state or federally. Um, and then... The other thing too, obviously, children's privacy. Yeah. We're starting to see some movements in the states about it. I know from my conversations, I think that this is a no-brainer. Right. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, you know, so California, they're going to have their own COPA, uh, which is going to raise the age mm-hmm. uh, uh- of like up from 13 to 18, right? And they have other provisions. I think I did a video about that recently. But that's going to change a lot around the country because we see California being very influential. And like you said, a lot of companies, like you said, and like I've seen, companies that aren't in California don't have, you know, have to be beholden to those laws themselves. They're often third parties to companies to say, we want you to be aligned with us, right? So when that happens in California, I think it's going to create this whole new wave of stuff. And then in the U.S., employers, employees have not been accustomed to having that type of access to data about what, you know, employers have about them. So I think that's definitely going to start a wave. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when you think about things like workplace yeah. surveillance and bossware, you know, it was fine when 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 organizations could do it, you know, in a clandestine manner. But now they have to kind of disclose that this is something that they do. So I think it's going to be a big sea change with those two things. Uh, in regards to the employee surveillance, they absolutely have these rights. You know, we need to have these rights if we don't already. Right. Um, as someone who was out when I was out consulting for Google, even back then, this was five, five going on six years ago, we had rumblings that Google was surveilling emails and reading emails of all their employees and contractors, et cetera, trying to figure out who was looking for a new job, probably among other things, um, and then firing people, letting them go before they actually got an offer, like pushing people out the door who had any signs that they were potentially going to leave, you know, so they had more loyal, loyal employees. Now, obviously, that's a, until we had any kind of validation of it that's a conspiracy theory so we're not going to sit here and spread conspiracies but yeah right knowing what i know now it makes sense that something like that would have been in place uh, and there was no protections there's nothing against the law about what they would have been doing at that point in time it's just a business and and then there are validated um cases of this happening across different organizations as well so it's not like that far out it's not like i made some space conspiracy theory there but no um yeah, I mean, it's it's very realistic. And people should have the right to email. I mean, obviously, yeah, you don't want to do it on your work computer. But let's be honest, some people don't have the money to get a personal computer. They use their work computer because that's just like the only uh, access they have, right? So right. I think you, you got to have those rights. There's 
a certain level of it, right? That I think it's reasonable to measure certain behaviors or certain metrics to qualify that the employee is performing up to some standards that you expect from them. But right. there's also a limit to say, hey, this is private, let it be. Um, and, right. And yeah. keep it how it was, you know. I don't know. I think the only thing, even though, I, I don't know, I guess the thing that concerns me is people always say, all we need is regulation. All we need is regulation. But I think we need a lot more than that. So regulation only covers 100%. part of it, right? So a lot of yes. it is how people feel about privacy, what they're willing to do to get that privacy, whether they're mm-hmm. like maybe changing services, uh, uh, having businesses make it a priority, right? Because mm-hmm. having that trust is something that, you know, when you erode that trust, you get kind of poor data or you don't, your the quality of data yeah. that a person wants to give you is much less, right? So you have like yeah. people signing up for services with phony, fictitious names. <laughs> it's like, I put the White House in when they asked me for my address every time, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, every time. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of those kids that whenever the magazines came in the mail, I would fill it out and I would put like the wrong name in there just to see what came back. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, so. I was always curious about what what people would do with the information that I gave, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's a real thing. And, and, you know, when we were in paper forms, it was a problem. But now, especially like you're saying, when people have more awareness of it, and there's services that are helping now, right? Like I use Firefox Relay all the time, uh, which is a service that will mask my email and block spam or promotional stuff. And and if I ever want to not receive emails from that people or those people, and I don't trust that their marketing system opts me out, which, let's be honest, is a very real thing. They have an unsubscribe button. It doesn't work. It's probably intentional. Right. How many times have you had that, right? Uh, so I use Firefox Relay because what it allows me to do is I just turn off that email. And then they have no access to me. So right. what, what, are, what are we talking about here Like with these companies that are they're crying about how much these laws are going to impact their ad revenues and stuff? Like. You won't have an advertising industry if all the information's fake. Right. You know, like, how are you going to send? How's, what's the value? The value of data is it allows you to make things more accurate, more targeted. If it's all fake, then you're just going to be sending mail to some trash cans. Yeah, totally. Not they're not already, but. Right. Yeah. That's true. That's <laughs> Well, I think that was part of the issue that, you know, the comp, you know, many of the companies that were doing this advertising, you know, they could say, oh, we spent sent all these ads to X and here are kind of your metrics, but it really wasn't reaching the people that they wanted to reach. Mm-hmm. And so it really wasn't, it didn't have a huge impact, uh, truly. So I think it's really interesting. But yeah, if it were the world according to you, um, Joe, and we did everything that we uh, you said, what would be your wish for privacy anywhere in the world where law, technology, human stuff, what are your thoughts? That is a big one. Um, let's start here. I believe, as I've said in my TED Talk, as I've talked about for the last words, we should have the right to own and control our data. That's a much bigger conversation than we can have here in one podcast. But I think we should have those rights. I think uh, ideal world, my data is tagged when it gets into the system. It's tracked one-to-one or however I want it built, allows me to get paid for that work, uh, my privacy respected. And maybe that's 
the ability to have controls. But actually, in the future, I think there's going to be fiduciaries, just like we have financial advisors, you know, life insurance people, people who are going to advise us on how to set those controls. Because the reality is, not everybody has the time or attention or literacy to take control, even if they have it. So I don't think this paradigm of noticing consent or choice, you know, is really where we're going to get stuck. I think it's just the beginning. It's the first test. I also, like you said, uh, um, I see a world where privacy is not just about compliance. You know, I've given a couple talks about this, and I'm calling privacy 2.0 era of post-compliance privacy, Mm -hmm. where, you know, privacy is a human factors thing, right? right? I tell people it's UX of security. It is constantly changing. It's always going to change for the rest of our lives because privacy is not a binary piece of you know, remediation or, or different tactical thing that you can just implement in code. Privacy has a lot to do with culture and time periods and technologies available and a lot of context to it. So um, I see this world actually, and, and again, a little bit of self-promotion here, but this is the work we're doing with Datagrade. We we're building an assessment that's not about making you compliant with any one jurisdiction, but actually to a control framework of ESG. Because ESG, uh, let's be honest, when you're talking to a privacy consultant, they're going to tell you they'll make you compliant with all the laws. But what they're really going to do is they're going to build a control framework that has X number of laws built into it with a focus on finding the most restrictive and making those your bellwether legislation pieces. So what we can do with ESG is now we have a G here that we can include all thing governance. We can definitely make you compliant. We just don't, we're just not a compliance company, right? The S becomes all the things that you and I have spoken about today. Uh, the dark patterns, the children's privacy, the impact on elderly and people who may never have the literacy to engage with these things, but are getting pushed deeper and deeper into it. You know, all the social things that um, maybe either aren't put into law or shouldn't be put into law. Sometimes things shouldn't fully be encoded in law. Um, but they are the social responsibilities that when a business uh, obliges, they gain better, more loyal customers and a more resilient organization is what they really become. So that's the S. And then the E, obviously, the most emerging part is the impact on environment. So this could be you know, a little extrapolation here, but data minimization, data protection, real good data protection practices, just base data minimization. If you reduce 20, 30% amount of your data, you reduce the amount of cloud space you need. Uh, or servers you need, and you reduce the infrastructure cost, but you also reduce the energy use, right? So we're exploring like all these concepts of how do we take the law as it is and where we see it going, where we think it's going, and put it into a framework that's ESG, which can be across jurisdictions, which can be higher than above and beyond compliance, and can create a framework that I think is the future, like you're saying, uh, because privacy, as, as we've talked about, is not just a law. Privacy is a personal issue, and it needs to be addressed as such. So if I could say, where do I want to see the future? It's a future that considers the human factors of privacy, and all of our people, or a lot of them, are literate enough to take action and understand, and we have controls in place to uh, protect us and have a civil, democratic society. Yeah. I love that vision. I love that. So I would love to for us to definitely keep in touch and see how things are going. Um, let, let's see how our vision comes true. <laughs> let's see. Let's see. 
I think we're going to make some impact together too. So let's, so. let's work on this change and, and rewrite the narrative because we're just at the beginning. This is going to be big. I agree. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been wonderful to have you here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was so excited and I'm definitely going to spread this everywhere. I'm so happy to have <laughs> been on the Data Diva podcast. I made it. This is amazing. Amazing. But yeah, we'll talk soon for sure. All right. Talk to you later, then. Okay. Bye-bye.